0: Hey, I'm Steph, and this is Not Today. Hello, friends, and welcome to the very first episode of Not Today, where I am by myself. It's just me today, guys. I hope that's okay. Alex is totally fine. He just couldn't be here for this episode. So it's just going to be us hanging out. I'm going to tell you a story. And boy, oh boy, do I have a story for you today. I had heard of the story a while ago, but I was reminded of it when a TikTok came across my For You page from the creator, the Jordan Rayner, where she talked about a very first-hand experience she had with Erin Caffey. And Erin is one of the very, very key players in the Caffey family murder. And in the TikTok, she explained how Erin was explaining her version of the story and how she was completely convinced that Erin was so innocent and did not belong in prison where she ended up. But there was a moment where Erin looked up and made eye contact with her and kind of smirked. And in that moment, she said that the energy of the room entirely changed and she felt like she was in danger. And that story just really stuck with me because that's such an interesting concept that someone could just have like evil in them. And I had to learn more about this case. And so here I am telling you the story of the Caffey family murders. I did want to quickly say at the top that this story is very intense and heartbreaking. So with that being said, buckle in and let's jump into it. Terry and Penny Caffey had three children, one daughter, 16-year-old Erin, and two sons, 13-year-old Matthew, or Bubba as the family called him, and 8-year-old Tyler, The family lived in a modest cabin deep in the woods down a one-lane gravel road just outside of Alba, Texas, which is a rural town with a population of just around 400 people. The Caffey family was well known in the community specifically for their faith. The family attended a local church, Miracle Faith Baptist Church to be precise, where they actively participated not only during Sunday services but also in weekly Bible study. Terry was a lay preacher at Miracle Faith Baptist, Penny played piano for the church, and Aaron sang in the church choir, and often performed worship solos during church on Sundays, and her singing was apparently so beautiful that it would bring people to tears. Erin's pastor, Todd McGee, once joked that if he had five more of her, he could fill his church on Sundays. Erin was beloved. She was beautiful, blonde, blue eyes, a sweet southern girl, and a real charmer. And all of the family members played instruments as well and would play them in the church, so overall they were very involved. Outside of church, Terry worked as a home aide and would deliver medical equipment for home and health care. Penny did a bunch of jobs. She volunteered delivering food to the elderly and disabled people, she homeschooled the kids, and was also a talented seamstress. The family moved to Alba in 2004 from another small Texas town, that way, they could be closer to Miracle Faith. And at that time, the three children originally started attending public school. However, that quickly ended after another girl apparently kissed Erin in the hallway at her middle school, which prompted Penny to homeschool all of her children with a Bible-centered curriculum. They also thought homeschooling would benefit Erin, as she had been diagnosed with ADD and was falling behind in school. But when Erin went into ninth grade and was starting high school, she had convinced her parents to allow her and her brothers to go back to public schooling. In July of 2007, Erin turned 16. She got her driver's license and an old Chevy pickup and started working at Sonic as a carhop, which basically meant she delivered customers their food on roller skates. Erin's co-workers recalled feeling like she was so sheltered. It was like she was seeing the world for the very first time. Because before then, Erin was homeschooled, which meant that her only other friends were really from church. But now that she was in public school and working at Sonic, she met a whole bunch of new people and, of course, made some new friends. And one of these new friends was an 18-year-old boy named Charlie Wilkinson. Charlie was a bit of a bad boy. He was very outdoorsy and was what you might call rough around the edges. He was an avid hunter, he spent much of his time fishing and tracking wild hogs through the brush, and like most of his friends, he was proficient with a firearm. Charlie never finished high school and did come from a broken family, so because of that, he wasn't home very often, so he often would stay with his godmother— He had never been arrested, and at school he had no serious disciplinary problems, but he was a hothead, and other students knew it was easy to get a rise out of him. One of them recalled that some guys would really tease him and pick at him until he would get angry. Although they did say Charlie might strike his desk or storm out of the classroom when he was provoked, he usually walked away from a fight. And according to Erin, she and Charlie just clicked. Throughout the fall, Charlie visited Erin at work constantly and it wasn't long after they met that Charlie had asked Aaron to be his girlfriend. Aaron's parents, Terry and Penny, of course, picked up on this new relationship and told Aaron that they wanted to meet her new boyfriend, so they'd have him over for dinner, that way they could get to know him. Immediately upon meeting Charlie, Terry knew that he did not like him. Penny told him to just give it some time, because maybe it was just the dad in him that made him not like his daughter's new boyfriend. Terry thought that could have been a possibility, but also, he felt like there was something about Charlie that just didn't seem right. The night that Terry met Charlie, he had just come home from a long day at work, and when he walked in, Charlie was sitting in his chair. Now, that wasn't the problem for Terry. The problem was, Terry had walked over to Charlie and stuck out his hand to shake Charlie's hand and said, "'Hello, you must be Charlie.' And Charlie didn't move to shake his hand. He just looked up at Terry and said, yeah, and you are? I couldn't imagine saying that to my partner's parents. I would rather drop dead. But that was the first impression that Charlie gave to Terry, his very new girlfriend's father. So right then and there, Terry was taken aback. He had to go up and introduce himself to this kid who was sitting in his damn chair. And Charlie acted as if he was being inconvenienced by all of this. So right off the bat, they did not have the best first impression, but they wanted to get to know him. So, Charlie started coming over for dinner all the time because her parents didn't want them going out on dates alone. So, they figured it would be better if Charlie just came over because they knew there was no really keeping Aaron from Charlie at that point. So, you might as well have it in the house. He came over so much so that they had to make a rule that Charlie had to leave by 9 p.m., Aaron, after that, was able to keep texting him or talking to him on the phone until around 10 p.m. on school nights and then later on weekends, but he was over so often that they were like, okay, get the hell out at 9 p.m. So clearly it happened a lot. This episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. HelloFresh makes home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. You get farm-fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and avoid those long checkout lines and spend more time doing the things you love with delicious, chef-crafted recipes. No matter your lifestyle or meal preference, HelloFresh has recipes sure to please everyone at your table. From fit and wholesome to veggie or family-friendly, you'll always find something even the pickiest of eaters will enjoy. And with Valentine's Day around the corner, keep in mind that HelloFresh can also be a really fun date night activity. Alex and I always have such a good time whipping up meals together while we blast our favorite music in the the background, and since the instructions are super easy to follow, and everything is pre-portioned, you barely even have to think. And the food is fantastic, so it's pretty hard to beat. Go to hellofresh.com/nottoday65 and use code nottoday65 for 65% off plus free shipping. That's hellofresh.com/nottoday65 and use code nottoday65 for 65% off plus free shipping. It's America's number one meal kit. Charlie also regularly went to church with the Caffey family, which they liked and didn't like because, yes, he was going to church, but there were rumors that Aaron and Charlie would be inappropriate in the church. They would be hugging and just all over each other, and there was also apparently one occasion where they were seen in church with Charlie's hand up her shirt. Definitely not something you're supposed to be doing in the Lord's house, but And that wasn't even it. After church, everyone would go outside and talk, and Aaron and Charlie would be off by themselves, not interacting with anyone, and would have their arms around each other and kissing. Just not what you would expect to see at a church, and it was gross teenage behavior. And Terry and Penny definitely did not like it. So it was the little things like that that Aaron's parents really did not like. Eventually, they started noticing that Charlie was becoming a bit obsessive and even aggressive with Aaron. He had to be around her all the time, and they had to be talking all the time. They noticed Aaron's attitude started changing, and she'd get really upset if she couldn't talk to him. Which sounds like it could be normal teenage angsty puppy love, but it was described as obsessive. The two also would sneak around behind her parents' backs and started sleeping together. Every once in a while, Aaron and Charlie were allowed to go out on dates alone as long as she was home by curfew. However, on one of these dates, Charlie pulled his car over on the side of a dirt road, knelt down, and gave Aaron his grandmother's engagement ring as a promise ring. A friend of Charlie's reported that Charlie was totally in love with Aaron and considered her to be his soulmate. He talked about her 24-7. It was also around that time that Aaron's aunt had alerted Terry and Penny that she had seen some troubling stuff on one of Charlie's social media pages. There had been several comments about drinking on his page, there was a photo of Charlie holding a bottle of Jack Daniels, there was also an exchange between Charlie and someone else talking about a party where they'd be drinking and having sex, and this person told Charlie to bring along his girlfriend that way they could all get wasted and have a good time. Which is like the worst thing that a parent or an adult could see a teenager talking about. It's like all the worst things. So it's pretty safe to say that Charlie was not anticipating having Aaron's parents come across this social media page. Because once they saw this, Aaron's parents had had quite enough. And then Aaron came home with a ring. So this is all just the perfect storm. When Aaron came home for the first time with this promise ring on her finger, her parents were shocked. Terry said the ring wasn't some cheap little ring. It was like a full-on nice diamond engagement ring because this was his grandmother's ring. And on top of it all, Terry and Penny had noticed that Aaron's grades had been slipping in school as well. So all of the things they didn't want for their daughter was happening. So that's when they took it upon themselves to sit their daughter down and say, look, we don't think Charlie is a very good influence on you and you need to break up with him. And it wasn't a you should break up with him. It was a you're going to break up with him and give the ring back type of conversation. And in that moment, Erin just hung her head and cried. But not because she was so mad at her parents. She had actually thanked her parents and said that she had been looking for a way to break up with him. She even said she knew for a while they shouldn't be together, but she just didn't know how to do it. Terry and Penny were extremely relieved with that outcome because they thought that Erin was going to blow up, as you would expect any teenage girl in love to do. But because of her reaction, they believed that they had gotten through to their daughter and everything would go back to normal. And in the next few days, everything felt great for the Caffey family. Erin seemed to be getting back to her old self, and things moved on. But things were not as they seemed. While Aaron was dating Charlie, she had become friends with some of his friends as well. One of which was Charlie Wilkinson's best friend, Charlie Wade, who was 20 years old. So we have two Charlies. I'm going to be calling Charlie Wilkinson, Charlie, and Charlie Wade, Charlie Wade. So I hope that made sense. And Charlie Wade's girlfriend was Bobby Johnson, who was 18 years old. So Aaron has Charlie, her boyfriend, Charlie Wade, and Bobby Johnson, who is Charlie Wade's girlfriend. So Aaron was hanging out with this group of people who was all older than her. Charlie Wade at the time was actually going through a divorce at 20, and had a baby girl with his ex-wife. So even though he was still young, he was going through some adult shit, which meant that Aaron was hanging out with them having these adult conversations and feeling very grown up. And once Aaron's parents told her that she needed to break up with Charlie, she was supposedly going around to her friends and telling them that she wanted her parents dead. Which is a very big jump, if you ask me, but I'm pretty sure I have a, a normal-ish brain. I'll take normal-ish. I know that teenagers say some stupid things, and can be extremely dramatic. I mean, I was a teenage girl myself at one point, but... Erin wasn't going around saying I wish my parents would die and like was making a joke about it or not meaning it. She meant it. She wanted her parents dead because they wouldn't let her be with Charlie. She said she was tired of them giving her all these rules and always being on her about everything and she had decided her life would be so much better if they were dead. So what she was saying to her parents was far different from what she was saying to her friends. And of course, when Aaron told Charlie what her parents had said, he was enraged. I mean, he loved Aaron; She was his soulmate, so he definitely didn't want to be broken up either. He was so mad that her parents would come between them. How could they do that? He had given Aaron his grandmother's engagement ring. He loves her so much, going on and on about this. And Aaron, of course, is feeding into it, saying, I know, I love you so much, I just wish my parents would die. On top of all of that, Erin had started telling her friends that her parents would beat her. She told her friends her parents were so abusive and they would hit her and she was so scared of them. And so now, she has Charlie who feels like Erin is his soulmate and he would do anything for her. And on top of that, he feels like he needs to protect her from these people who are trying to tear them apart. Which is when the two of them come up with a plan that they need to kill her parents. And somehow, that plan also included Charlie's best friend, Charlie Wade, and his girlfriend, Bobby Johnson. They were all going to get together and kill Erin's parents, and that should solve all of her problems. This plan was set to happen on March 1st, 2008. That night, everything seemed great. Terry had started a pillow fight with Matthew and Tyler in the living room. They had popped some popcorn, and even Aaron got in on the pillow fight for a little bit, and they wrestled each other to the ground as they laughed and played. And after the fun, everyone went off to bed. Tyler, Matthew, and Aaron all went upstairs, and Terry joined his wife in bed. From about 11.46 p.m. to around 12.40-ish a.m., Erin called Charlie six times to ask him where he was. She wanted him to come and kill her parents, so she started blowing up his phone. It's so eerie to think that Erin was able to have a pillow fight and laugh and play with her family just a few hours before she believed they'd be killed. This plan was in motion the entire time, and she knew it, and she was able to play with her family and her younger brothers. So around midnight, Charlie... Charlie Wade and Bobby Johnson had driven up to Aaron's house to get the job done, but when they pulled up, the family's dog was outside and was barking at them, which scared them off. So they told Aaron that they couldn't do it because the dog was outside and barking, and that was going to draw too much attention, but that's when Aaron started begging Charlie to come kill her parents. Terry had actually woken up when their dog had been barking for about five minutes nonstop outside, but after he stopped and didn't make another peep, he just rolled back over and went to sleep. Erin told Charlie to please come back and kill her parents. She'd take care of the dog and put it in a closet somewhere so they could come back and do it. Instead of stopping at that point and thinking about what they were actually doing, these three people said, all right and they turned around to come back to the caffy home. When the car pulled up, Aaron snuck out of the house and got into the car with them. So now, the four of them leave the house and drive to a cemetery where they sat for an hour to figure out what the plan was to kill Aaron's parents. While they were talking about their plans, Aaron told them, well, you're probably going to need to kill my little brothers too. That way they can't say who did it. And they sat there talking about this for an hour, and not one of them stopped and thought that they shouldn't do it. That's something that I cannot wrap my head around. It's one thing to have an incredibly unhinged 16-year-old who actually means it when she says she wants her parents dead. I mean, that's unbelievable to begin with. But the fact that three other adults, I mean, they were over 18. Charlie Wade was 20, Bobby Johnson was, I think, 19, and Charlie Wilkinson was 18. To think that all three of these adults were okay with the idea that not only were they going to kill Aaron's parents, but they were also going to kill Aaron's two little brothers. It's despicable. Aaron told Charlie Wade that her parents had a lockbox with some money in it. And because he was going through this divorce with his wife and wanted to get custody of his daughter back, he needed $2,000 for a lawyer. So Aaron told him, my parents have $2,000 in their safe, so you can have it when you go in and kill them, just take it. So that was a little incentive for Charlie Wade, I suppose. And then Aaron turns to Charlie, her boyfriend, and says, if you love me, you'll do this for me, you'll kill my parents. It was all just so simple. So the four of them pull back up to the Caffey home. Something to note about the Caffey home was it was in the middle of nowhere. This is Alba, Texas. There is a population of 483 people as of 2021. So the Caffeys didn't have a next-door neighbor. The nearest house was quite a ways away from theirs, meaning no one was around to hear or see anything. After pulling up to the house, both Charlies get out with a 22 caliber gun and two samurai swords. When the two men get into the house, they immediately go toward the parents' bedroom. Terry and Penny's bedroom was on the first floor. This home was a two-story cabin, so the kids were upstairs in their bedrooms, and the parents' room was on the ground floor, like I said. So Terry and Penny were asleep in their bedroom, and little did they know that there were two men in their home with samurai swords and a twenty-two caliber gun. The boys get to the parents' bedroom door and immediately kick it down. The door flew open and the handle hit the wall, which made a really loud bang. So Terry immediately jumps up when he hears this loud noise, and the first thing that comes to his head is that Tyler had come into their room because he had a bad dream. But as soon as he sat up was when the gunfire started going off. They shot Terry over and over and ended up shooting him five times. He had thrown his arms up to try and shield himself and Penny from the shots going off, which resulted in a lot of rounds going up his arms, until they shot him in the face, which blew him out of his bed and onto the floor. They aimed the gun at Penny and shot her a few times before the gun jammed, which is when Charlie Wade used the samurai sword and stabbed her in the neck. This injury was catastrophic because it was so deep it almost decapitated her right there in the bed. Charlie then went back over to Terry's side of the bed where he was laying face down on the floor and kicked him in the foot, basically trying to see if Terry was still alive. As he was laying face down, Terry heard Charlie reload the gun. He squeezed his eyes shut and thought to himself that this was it. He was going to be shot in the back of the head. After a minute of hearing just breathing of someone standing over him, this person then walked away. At that point, Terry didn't know who had attacked him. Everything had happened so fast, so he thought that this was a random home invasion. It wasn't until he heard the footsteps of the men headed upstairs. Terry heard 13-year-old Matthew yelling, Charlie, Charlie, why are you doing this? Please stop, which is when it clicked for him who it was. Now, I want to quickly say that this part is devastating. This whole attack is evil, but the two guys did not stop at Aaron's parents. As we know, Aaron specified that she wanted them to also kill her little brothers, and they do. So that's just a quick warning before I get into the specifics. Matthew had been at the top of the stairs and was pleading with Charlie to stop as he walked up toward him, and as they did that, they shot 13-year-old Matthew in his face, which killed him instantly. They then started looking around for 8-year-old Tyler. They found him hiding in his closet, terrified and sitting in the fetal position, and they took their samurai swords and stabbed him to death right there in the closet. After they believed they had killed Aaron's entire family, they ransacked the house. They went into her parents' safe, like Aaron had told them, and found somewhere around $300. So, nowhere near $2,000. Not that that would have made any shred of difference, but it was $300. They also retrieved a bag that Aaron had packed for herself, so they got that for her since she needed the clothes that she had packed, And then they went around the house lighting blankets and anything they could on fire, that way the house would go up in flames and get rid of any evidence they may have left behind. After everything, they left and got themselves out of there. Now, what the guys didn't know was that Terry was somehow still alive after suffering five gunshot wounds at close range. He was barely alive, but regained consciousness enough to look over and see that one of the walls was on fire. The door to their bedroom was completely engulfed in flames, so there was no way he'd be able to get out that way, which is when he went over to the other side of the bed and saw that Penny had been brutally murdered. His next priority was checking on the kids, so he went to his bathroom because there was another door in there that led out to the kitchen, but again, the flames were blocking that door. Not only that, but he heard the ceiling start to cave in and the windows explode out in the kitchen and living room area, so he knew he wasn't going to be able to get the kids that way, and he also had a really terrible feeling that his kids had also been killed by these intruders. The only way out was through one window that he had in their bathroom, but the smoke was so thick and the fire was so hot and he had been losing so much blood that he got lost in his own bathroom and couldn't find the window. When he did manage to find the window, he couldn't get it open at first, but he finally managed to push it up and push the screen out, and that first gasp of air felt so good in his lungs because he had breathed in so much smoke. Terry managed to crawl out of the window and fell around four to five feet down and hit the ground outside. But once he was outside, he was completely alone because, again, the cafes didn't have neighbors directly nearby. And it was dark. Terry said it was so dark you could barely see your hand in front of your face. He tried standing up and would walk two or three steps and then fall to the ground again, so Terry crawled on his hands and knees or on his stomach, whatever he could do to keep pushing forward, all the way getting cut by thorns and tree roots and things that were in his way. At about the halfway point, Terry leaned himself up against a tree and looked back and saw that the house was completely on fire, which is when he knew there was no chance that anyone was still alive in there. He believed that not only was his wife and two sons killed, but he believed that Aaron was in there dead as well. He wanted to die at that point, but as he sat there and watched the flames engulf his home, he got angry, and all of the emotions began to well up inside of him, and he knew that if he died right there, then nobody would know who killed his family. He crawled around 400 yards, which is like the distance of four football fields, and even had to fight through a barbed wire fence where he tore up his clothes and his flesh even more, before he finally made it to his nearest neighbors Tommy and Helen's home. As he's on the ground, he crawled up to the door and banged on it. At first, no one answered, and he lay there wondering why no one was coming to the door. But finally, Tommy opened the door and found Terry on his doorstep, completely covered in blood. He immediately said, oh my god, what happened to Terry? And he told him that Charlie had murdered his whole family and burned down his house, and he needed him to call 911. So Tommy called 911, and as the operator talked to him, they asked where Terry was injured. But as he looked at Terry, he couldn't even identify where the wounds were. Terry was just, from head to toe, so covered in blood. When the ambulance and police arrived, Terry, who was still conscious, told Deputy Charles Dickerson that the person who did this was Charlie Wilkinson. Charles Dickerson then passed this information along to Chief Deputy Kurt Fisher. In rural communities as small as Alba, there are no strangers, and Kurt Fisher shook his head when he learned that Charlie had done this. His own sons were friends with Charlie and had fished and gone four-wheeling with him many times before. In fact, Fisher told the detective he had spotted Charlie's car parked outside of Matthew Wade's trailer while driving to the crime scene. Matthew Wade was Charlie Wade's brother. So as Terry was rushed off to the hospital, the police immediately went to Matthew Wade's trailer. This trailer was disgusting. There was clothes and trash everywhere, mattresses on the floor, pizza boxes. It had been described as looking almost like a case of hoarders. The police entered the trailer and told Charlie to get up and get dressed and come with them. When police first entered this trailer, they found Charlie asleep with his shirt off, and on the floor right next to him was a gun with ammunition next to it, which ended up being the murder weapon, so clearly he was not too concerned about being discovered there. As Charlie was getting dressed, they also spotted his boots had blood droplets on them, and so they took those and took him into custody right then and there. After taking Charlie, they began questioning him and also obtained a warrant to search the trailer and as they searched, they came across what they believed to be either a wig or a large stuffed animal, but as they touched it, they saw that the hare was actually Erin Caffey, who had been crouched and hiding amongst the garbage. She was found under a pile of clothing by a closet in one of the back rooms of the trailer, laying in a fetal position. As she looked up at them, she looked dazed and confused. The first word that came out of her mouth was, "fire." She then asked the officers, where am I? What happened? The officers told her where she was and that her family had been hurt. Erin responded with shock. Through teary eyes and what they believed to be confusion, Erin repeatedly told the officers that she was 14 years old. She had woken up in a house full of smoke. There had been two guys with swords dressed in black who had ordered her to get down on the floor. She was unsure how she had gotten to the trailer, but did remember trying to call her friend quote-unquote charlie and being unable to reach him then she drank some stuff that was offered to her at the trailer and she could not recall anything afterward the whole time aaron spoke in a timid childlike voice that officers had to strain to hear completely infantilizing herself just playing them like a fiddle and of course these officers felt terrible for aaron They were operating under the assumption that she was also a victim in all of this and she had just lost her entire family. So Erin was taken by ambulance to the Hopkins County Memorial Hospital where she was given a full medical assessment. At that point, Terry had been coming out of surgery and was told that Erin had survived, which to him felt like a miracle. So they took Erin to the station to get her statement. But before they did that, one of the officers asked, does she smell like smoke? Because she had referenced the fire when she was found, but she didn't smell like smoke, like she had been anywhere near a fire. And it was true, her clothes did not smell like smoke. So at that point, police are beginning to kind of piece together what may have happened, and they're a bit skeptical of her story. So they run some tests on her to see if she actually had been drugged. You know, it really blows my mind how little... Planning they put into this murder. I mean, for someone who wants her parents dead so badly, she did not think about the aftermath at all. I guess that's a good thing. And she was 16 years old, so like, I guess how much planning could she really have accounted for? But it really just is astounding to me how little they actually did to avoid being caught. Like, they just went back to this trailer and went to sleep, they didn't run. They didn't even dispose of the murder weapon. They had blood on them, or at least Charlie did. Erin never actually went inside, so she didn't have blood on her. But she told this story about being in this fire and being drugged and kidnapped as if they couldn't test that kind of thing. I, I guess she wasn't thinking about it, but just thinking about it really blows my mind. I hope that, <laughs> I hope I can piece that together because that was very scattered for me in real time. But, but it's just astounding to me how little thought they actually put into the murder of multiple people like a whole family children and parents like how heartless can you be and then how stupid can you be anyway let's get back into it so they test her to see if she had actually been drugged and when the tests come back erin had just been reunited with her grandparents who were beyond happy that their granddaughter had survived this horrifying attack So the three of them were being escorted by police to the hospital to visit Terry when they got the call that Erin had no drugs in her system and had been implicated in the crime. So the car was stopped and she was put under arrest right then and there on the side of the road. Meanwhile, at the hospital, Terry was recovering from surgery. His sister was with him, and was told by doctors not to say anything, but she thought that he had a right to know that Aaron had just been arrested for the involvement in his family's murders. Terry getting this news felt like his world was crumbling all over again, of course. Charlie hadn't confessed at first, but after they told him that Terry had survived and identified him as one of the shooters, he immediately told them that Aaron was the one who wanted all of this. He told them he wanted the two of them to just run away together, or he even suggested he he could get her pregnant. That way, her parents would have to allow them to be together forever, but she insisted the only way they could be together was if her family was dead. And it was at that time that Charlie implicated Charlie Wade and Bobby Johnson, so they too were tracked down, arrested, and brought in for questioning. And all three of them, both Charlie's and Bobby's separately said that Erin was the mastermind behind these murders. All of this was so unexpected because Erin seemed to be this good little girl that sang in the church choir. But when they searched Aaron's phone and got the phone records, they saw all the calls that Aaron made to Charlie that night, along with all of the texts, begging him to come back and kill her family. When Aaron was clued in that the jig was up and they basically knew everything, she of course changed up her story and said that she never wanted this to happen, but she was scared and was manipulated by this controlling boyfriend. Charlie Wilkinson said that he did it to protect Erin because she had told him that she was being beaten. Charlie Wade said he did it because he really needed the money Aaron promised him. And Bobby Johnson was just there for really nothing. I don't know. She was just, she was just Charlie Wade's girlfriend. I mean, how stupid can you be? But anyway, it came out that after the killing spree... Charlie took a pre-packaged suitcase of Aaron's belongings out to the car where she seemed happy, and he remembered Aaron smiling and said, I'm glad that's over. According to both Bobby Johnson and Charlie Wade, Aaron also said, Holy fuck, that was awesome, as they drove off together. Wade also recalled that moment saying, When we pulled away from the house, she was happier than a kid on Christmas morning. I mean... How evil can you be to your core to react that kind of way after you orchestrated the murder of your parents and younger brothers? I mean, my God. Charlie said they left the house and drove around for a while, and then he and Aaron went went back to the trailer where the couple had sex before going to sleep. So clearly she was really enjoying all of this. She didn't have a care in the world. She was even having a good time. After her arrest, Erin manipulated a mental health counselor, Israel Lewis, who was hired to evaluate her for defense. She had insisted Charlie had a violent temper and had killed her family because she had broken up with him, and then he framed her. Lewis said he would have put his license on the line to say that she was telling him the truth. He completely believed Erin and said that she seemed genuine, sincere, and was extremely convincing. He was 100% convinced of her innocence. That was until he was presented with the evidence of the case, showing that Erin begged for her family's murders, even after she was presented with alternative options, which just goes to show how manipulative Erin really can be. Lewis said, I have worked with some good liars, but Erin was one of the best. And that's coming from a mental health professional with like 19 years of experience. So that's really saying something. Although the three others involved said Aaron was the mastermind behind everything, she denies that to this day. Terry Caffey was discharged from the hospital several days later and went to stay with his sister in the town of Leonard about an hour's drive from Alba. He walked out of there with only a broken nose, two fractured cheekbones, and minor nerve damage in his right arm. So, after everything, he walked out of there relatively fine. I mean... Physically, not emotionally or mentally, obviously. I mean, the emotional turmoil after something like this is unimaginable, but still. A week after her arrest, Terry came to visit Erin in jail with her grandparents. He went with Penny's parents, so her dead mother's parents, and he said seeing her in that orange jumpsuit was extremely weird. He wanted to talk to her about what happened. He had so many questions, but her lawyer had instructed her not to talk about any of it. So somehow, they didn't. And then, of course, as he left, he completely broke down outside as he held onto Penny's mother. Erin basically told her father that, yes, she was a part of it, but it wasn't her plan, and she was scared and caught up in it, and it's not a very good excuse, but he believed her and even forgave her. He does not believe that she was the mastermind behind this entire thing. He fully believes that his daughter is not a victim in this, but that she was just along for some crazy ride that she was not in control of. In court, Terry daydreamed about killing both Charlie Wilkinson and Charlie Wade. He said the days and weeks that followed the grief, I cannot put it into words. I was suicidal. I had so much bitterness and hatred. I wanted to find these guys. I wanted to strangle them. As time went on, I began to realize that my grief and anger would destroy me. I would never be able to honor my family if I let this destroy me. So he decided to forgive them. He said he forgave his daughter more easily, but it took much longer to forgive the guys who actually did it. The fact that he had any mental space to forgive any of them is astounding to me. But when attorneys told him that they wanted to go for the death penalty, he wrote a letter and protested at the headquarters of the attorney general's office asking them to spare these boys' lives. Everyone was shocked by Terry's decision, but he told them that killing these boys won't bring his family back. He wants them to wake up every day and think about what they took and hopefully one day find remorse. All involved in the Caffey family killings are currently incarcerated. Wilkinson and Wade are both serving life sentences and are not eligible for parole. Johnson was sentenced to two concurrent 40-year sentences and will be eligible for parole after serving 24 years, and Erin Caffey is serving two consecutive life sentences for the murders of her mother and two brothers and the attempted murder of her father. However, she will be eligible for parole when she's 59. Johnson got a much lighter sentence because she was just sitting in the car. Erin also didn't go in and physically do anything, but she was labeled as the mastermind behind the crime, making her sentence much more severe, and rightfully so. Actually, something insane about this court case that really solidifies that Erin was, in fact, the mastermind is that one of her ex-boyfriends before Charlie came into court and testified that she had actually asked him to murder her parents, She said any boyfriend she gets, her parents don't want her to have. But this boy at least had enough sense to say, oh, yeah, that's definitely not going to happen. But then no attention was ever brought to that statement because I guess he really didn't believe she'd ever go through with it. However, there were also classmates of Aaron's that testified they had overheard Erin and Charlie plotting to kill her parents, so it really makes you wonder, like, how many people actually knew of this plan, and why didn't anyone say anything? I guess it really just comes back to if you see something, say something. That definitely fits in this, in this scenario. But one of the most astounding parts of all of this to me is that Terry still keeps in contact with his daughter. He visits her somewhere around once a month, and although he says sometimes it's hard to visit her, he forgave her and doesn't feel like she was the mastermind behind everything. Erin was never actually questioned or cross-examined because at the time of the crime, she was a minor. When she was arrested, she gave a written statement instead of actually talking to police. I mean, she gave very limited statements, but her official statement was just written down and it was a short paragraph. So, since everything, she has given three different stories, and has admitted that two of the three of these were complete lies, but says that the version that is the truth is the one that she told her father. So, she's sticking with that she knew about it, but didn't say or do anything to stop it, and that's her real crime. Terry has been remarried twice since then. The woman he is with now, he has children with, and feels like he has a family again, which is amazing. He became an ordained minister, and he gives his testimony most weekends at local churches, using his family story as a lesson in forgiveness. But I can't even imagine the emotional turmoil, the mental health issues he's had to go through. I know he's been through some severe PTSD after everything, and for a while slept with a gun on his chest and would wake up in the middle of the night believing he was hearing gunshots. But... Hopefully, since then, things have gotten better, at least. I know since then, he now no longer sleeps with a gun on his chest. I believe it's in a box near him. It's not physically on him, so I guess that's progress. And even since then, I hope things have gotten at least somewhat better for him. I don't think he'll ever fully recover from the pain and trauma of what happened, but at least he has a family again and is doing his best to move on. But that is the story of the very senseless murders of the Caffey family and the survival of Terry Caffey. Man, this case, it's really a hard one to wrap your head around. I don't have any official diagnosis or any knowledge of a diagnosis of Aaron Caffey, and I certainly can't diagnose anything, but you have to wonder, is this... A psychopath? Is this psychopathy? Like, this is someone who seemingly does not feel any remorse or empathy or anything. I mean, she was essentially celebrating after her family was brutally murdered and her house was set on fire. She was able to walk away and celebrate and have sex with her boyfriend as if her family wasn't just killed at her hand. Like, she didn't physically do it, but that doesn't make her any less accountable for what happened. And the fact that all of these kids, people, adults, didn't say anything or stop it. The fact that Charlie Wilkinson had suggested to Aaron that they run away together, they have a baby together, and still he was able to be convinced that the only possible way they could be together was murder. It just makes no sense. They all sat there in that cemetery for an hour and talked about specifically how they were going to murder an entire family in cold blood and not one of them did anything to stop it. It's just such an unbelievable sequence of events. And it's also incredibly interesting to me how everyone who has come into contact with Erin Caffey talks about how she is so convincing, so sincere, so genuine, seemingly, She really is like the definition of a wolf in sheep's clothing, which is just a very scary thing to think about. The fact that people like that exist in this world, they walk around and seem to be like really great people and they're capable of something like this. I mean, this is probably not your average person, obviously, but the fact that anyone out there is capable of something like this is really scary. But. Anyway, to end on a positive note, I'm very happy that Terry is alive and has a family again and feels some sense of, I don't know, peace that he was able to forgive and kind of move on is amazing. So that's definitely something to celebrate, if nothing else. But anyway, that's enough of that horror. Why don't we move on to our good thing? And it's just me today. So what's my good thing? Hmm my good thing is that today i made stuffed eggplant and it was so good we recently got the mediterranean cookbook and i love eggplant and i I found this recipe and it's the first one i made from the cookbook and it's it was actually surprisingly easy i don't really cook I'm not a good cook. I, like, I make myself rice or pasta or a sandwich, and that's kind of the extent. I'm just incredibly lazy when it comes to, like, the cleanup. When I do cook, I do it well. Like, I physically can cook, but I just don't enjoy the process. I'm not like that. I don't find it relaxing. I kind of find it stressful a little bit. But anyway, I I did make this stuffed eggplant. It was surprisingly easy, and it was very delicious and i kind of tweaked it a little bit it was a little bit like ooh, i know the recipe says this but i'm gonna add in that and i'm gonna do it like this and it actually came out really good so i'm proud of myself i've got a shit ton of leftovers and i'm gonna take advantage of that because hell yeah i did that anyways thank you guys for coming on this journey with me of our very first solo episode i hope i did all right If you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nottoday underscore podcast. If you would like to check out any of our exclusive bonus content, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival or something crazy that's happened to them and you'd like to share it with us and potentially hear it in an upcoming listener's episode, send it to nottodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is nottodaypodcast and a Twitter that is nottodaypodcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three. Aw, uh, because that makes sense. Anyway, just keep breathing. Yeah.